0: Many of us in this world find ourselves searching for ways to feel more alive. We move through our lives day after day living through the same repetitive cycles and the same stressful patterns that often leave us feeling defeated, underappreciated, or unfulfilled. What if there were a different way to perceive life? What if out there we were able to find the keys to a happy, healthy, and fulfilling reality right here, right now? For those of us who are looking for a way to transform our lives, for those of us who want to learn how to fully live in this moment, to change how we feel, how we perceive the world, and awaken to a better reality so we can fully live this life, this is the Live This Life Podcast. I'm your host, Heath Cummings. I'm here to inspire you to ask yourself the question, are you living or are you killing time? What's up, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Live This Life podcast. This is an episode that I've been very much looking forward to. We're going to jump into the power of now, chapter one. And very much looking forward to this one in the last episode that we did on The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. We just did the forward and introduction, which I thought was really valuable to the rest of the content in the book. But now we get to jump into the the meat and potatoes of this, this great book. Uh, I've really leaned on this one this week. I've read a few chapters that were pivotal to me that I've had bookmarked. It's been a tough week, but managed to pull through this one. Oh, and before we get started on this episode, I wanted to take a minute and read the very first review that we've gotten for the Live This Life podcast. This one's through Apple Podcasts. And if you are so inspired and you enjoy the podcast, if you could go on there and give us a rating and comment, it would be awesome. It'd be nice to hear what people are actually thinking about it. Um, Whatever platform you're listening to, I'm not familiar with many of the platforms out there other than Apple. That's the one I use to listen to my own podcasts of all the ones I like to listen to and uh, use Anchor to actually record this podcast. But this review came in through Apple. It was a five-star review, which said by... Gal Girl05, which said, great blueprint for learning how to live your life to its fullest. Explorations of self-discovery, self-awareness, and ways to have a meaningful and fulfilling life. Thank you, Gal Girl05, whoever you are. That was an awesome thing to discover today. And like I said, if you're inspired to um to leave a review, I will definitely review them on the podcast I'll read them out loud that's a that's an awesome awesome thing that uh, can motivate you to to keep it going now before we go on just a couple of really important fundamental things that this book mentions in its foreword and in the introduction a couple of very very profound things that that resonated with me was about how the mind was like a butterfly fluttering from one flower to another, and that the mind engages past experience or projecting its own made-for-television movie anticipating what's to come. I, for one, found myself in that mode, in a constant state of that mode my entire life before I found much of these concepts and started meditation on my own. And that Russell DiCarlo, when he wrote this forward, talks about how we rarely ever find ourselves resting in the oceanic depth of the here and now, which this book helps people find. When you take these concepts and embody them, it helps you really embody the now, the moments of now that are in your life instead of thinking about the past or worrying about the future. It gets you to be here now, and that's where the fulfillment in life really comes from. And that's why I felt that reading the foreword and the introduction was so important. The other part was when, Eckhart was talking about when he had a profound moment of awakening and he was in the room that he had been in a thousand times and he saw it in a whole different way. It was like almost like seeing things in high definition. He saw a whole different room that he'd seen a thousand times, but he had seen it over and over again. And I had kind of noticed that with experiences that I've had over and over, different people I've dealt with or places I've been. The situations were so much more in depth. They were so much more meaningful. And I was able to kind of be there and appreciate them in the moment instead of almost having that rear view mirror nostalgic look at things. Like you just kind of go through certain things and then you look back on them and say, Oh, I wish I enjoyed that more when it was here. Since I've really embodied all this, I've appreciated so many of just the little tiny moments like going apple picking with my family about how, how many. Years we have left of doing that as a as a family with my kid being a small kid, and little things like seeing them going, tr- seeing him going trick or treating and doing all that kind of stuff. This year, I just I really was able to be in those moments and enjoy every single bit of it. And I know that these concepts, revisiting this book after I've read it a few years ago, revisiting these things now on the podcast has really helped me sort of revigorate a lot of the things I learned from this book. Now, there are certain portions of the book where Eckhart put in this little symbol indicating he wanted the reader to pause and reflect for a moment. So when we get to those portions in the book, I'll play a short little clip of music, maybe five to ten seconds. Um, if you'd like to use that time to reflect, then do so. If you want to go back and listen to that portion over again before the reflection, pause it and reflect longer. Whatever you choose to do, it's a good time to, to do it. But that's what he, he wanted done in the middle of that book, so I figured it was significant to to interject that for a moment and let everybody pause to reflect Without further ado, let's get it growing here and read chapter one of the power of now You are not your mind the greatest obstacle to enlightenment Enlightenment what is that? beggar had been sitting by the side of a road for over 30 years one day a stranger walked by spare some change mumbled the beggar mechanically holding out his old baseball cap i have nothing to give you said the stranger then he asked what's that you're sitting on nothing replied the beggar just an old box i've been sitting on it for as long as i can remember ever looked inside said the stranger no said the beggar what's the point there's nothing in there Have a look inside, insisted the stranger. The beggar managed to pry open the lid. With astonishment, disbelief, and elation, he saw the box was filled with gold. I am that stranger who has nothing to give you and who is telling you to look inside. Not inside any box, as in the parable, but somewhere even closer, inside yourself. Those who have not found their true wealth, which is the radiant joy of being, and the deep, unshakable peace that comes with it, are beggars, even if they have great material wealth. They're looking outside for scraps of pleasure or fulfillment, for validation, security, or love, while they have a treasure within that not only includes all of those things, but is infinitely greater than anything the world can offer. The word enlightenment conjures up the idea of some superhuman accomplishment, and the ego likes to keep it that way but it is simply your natural state of felt oneness with being. It is a state of connectedness with something immeasurable and indestructible, something that, almost paradoxically, is essentially you and is yet much greater than you. It is finding your true nature beyond the name and form. The inability to feel this connectedness gives rise to the illusion of separation from yourself and from the world around you. You then perceive yourself, consciously or unconsciously, as an isolated fragment. Fear arises, and conflict within and without becomes the norm. I love the Buddha's simple definition of enlightenment as the end of suffering. There's nothing superhuman in that, is there? Of course, as a definition, it is incomplete. It only tells you what enlightenment is not. No suffering. But what's left when there is no more suffering? The Buddha is silent on that, and his silence implies that you'll have to find out for yourself. He uses a negative definition so that the mind cannot make it into something to believe in, or into a superhuman accomplishment, a goal that is impossible for you to attain. Despite this precaution, the majority of Buddhists still believe that enlightenment is for the Buddha, not for them. At least not in this lifetime you use the word being. Can you explain what you mean by that? Being is the eternal, ever-present, one life beyond the myriad of forms of life that are subject to birth and death. However, being is not only beyond, but also deep within every form as its innermost invisible and indestructible essence. This means that it is accessible to you now as your own deepest self, your true nature, but doesn't seek to grasp it with your mind. Don't try to understand it. You can know it only when the mind is still. When you are present, when your attention is fully and intensely in the now, being can be felt, but it can never be understood mentally. To regain awareness of being and to abide in that state of feeling realization is enlightenment. And now there is the pause symbol. When you say being, are you talking about God? If you are, then why don't you say it? The word God has become empty of meaning through thousands of years of misuse. I use it sometimes, but I do it sparingly. By misuse, I mean that people who have never even glimpsed the realm of the sacred, the infinite vastness behind that word, use it with great conviction, as if they knew what they're talking about or they argue against it, as if they knew what it is that they are denying. This misuse gives rise to absurd absurd beliefs, assertions, and egoic delusions, such as, My or our God is the only true God, and your God is false. Or Nietzsche's, which is Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, Nietzsche, he's a German philosopher, Nietzsche's famous statement of God is dead. The word God has become a closed concept, The moment the word is uttered, a mental image is created no longer, perhaps, of an old man with a white beard, but still a mental representation of someone or something outside of you, and yes, almost inevitably a male someone or something. Neither God, nor being, nor any other word can define or explain the ineffable reality behind the word. So the only important question is whether the word is a help or hindrance in enabling you to experience that toward which it points does it point beyond itself to a transcendental reality or does it lend itself too easily to become no more than an idea in your head that you believe in a mental idol the word being explains nothing nor does god being however has the advantage that it is only an open concept It does not reduce the infinite invisibility to a finite entity. It is impossible to form a mental image of it. Nobody can claim exclusive possession of being. It is your very essence and it is immediately accessible to you as the feeling of your own presence. The realization I am that is prior to I am this or I am that. So it is only a small step from the word being to the experience of being. And when they keep putting being into this book, it's capitalized. So I guess being is to represent God. What is the greatest obstacle to experiencing this reality? Identification with your mind, which causes thought to become compulsive. Not to be able to stop thinking is a dreadful affliction, but we don't realize this because almost everybody is suffering from it, so it is considered normal. This incessant mental noise prevents you from finding the realm of inner stillness that is inseparable from being. It also creates a false mind-made self that casts a shadow of fear and suffering. We will look at it all in more detail later. The philosopher Descartes believed that he had found the most fundamental truth when he made his famous statement, I think, therefore I am. He had in fact given expression to the most basic error, to equate thinking with being in identity with thinking. The compulsive thinker, which means almost everyone, lives in a state of apparent separateness an insanely complex world of continuous problems and conflict, a world that reflects the ever-increasing fragmentation of the mind. Enlightenment is a state of wholeness, of being at one and therefore at peace, at one with life in its manifested aspect, the world, as well as with your deepest self and life unmanifested, at one with being. Enlightenment is not only the end of suffering, and of continuous conflict within and without, but also the end of the dreadful enslavement to incessant thinking. What an incredible liberation this is. Identification with your mind creates an opaque screen of concepts, labels, images, words, judgments and definitions that block all true relationship. It comes between you and yourself, between you and your fellow man and woman, between you and your nature, between you and God. It is the screen of thought that creates the illusion of separateness, the illusion that there is a you and a totally separate other. You then forget the essential fact that underneath the level of physical appearances and separate forms, you are one with all that is. By forget, I mean that you can no longer feel this oneness as self-evident reality. You may believe it to be true, but you no longer know it to be true. A belief may be comforting. Only through your own experience, however, does it become liberating. Thinking has become a disease. Disease happens when things get out of balance. For example, there is nothing wrong with cells dividing and multiplying in the body. But when this process continues in disregard of the total organism, cells proliferate and we have disease. The mind is a superb instrument if used rightly. If used wrongly, however, it becomes very destructive. To put it more accurately, it is not so much that you use your mind wrongly. You usually don't use it at all. It uses you. This is the disease. You believe that you are your mind. This is the delusion. The instrument has taken you over. So in the book, there are these italicized portions that look like they're question and answer sort of things. Um, This one is italicized. This next paragraph I don't quite agree. It is true that I do a lot of aimless thinking like most people, but I can still choose to use my mind to get and accomplish things. And I do that all the time. And the response to that is just because you can solve a crossword puzzle or build an atom bomb doesn't mean that you use your mind. Just as dogs love to chew bones, the mind loves to get its teeth into problems. That's why it does crossword puzzles and builds atom bombs. You have no interest in either. Let me ask you this. Can you be free of your mind whenever you want to? Have you found the off button? And the question response to that is, you mean to stop thinking altogether? No, I can't, except maybe for a moment or two. Then the mind is using you. You are unconsciously identified with it. So you don't even know that you are its slave. It's almost as if... You are possessed without knowing it. And so you take the possession, the possessing entity to be yourself. The beginning of freedom is the realization that you are not the possessing entity, the thinker. Knowing this enables you to observe the entity. The moment you start watching the thinker, a high level of consciousness becomes activated. Then you begin to realize that there is a vast realm of intelligence beyond thought. That thought is only a tiny aspect of that intelligence. You also realize that all the things that truly matter, beauty, love, creativity, joy, inner peace, arise from beyond the mind. You begin to awaken, freeing yourself from your mind. What exactly do you mean by watching the thinker? When someone goes to the doctor and says, I hear a voice in my head. He or she will most likely be sent to a psychiatrist. The fact is that, in a very similar way, virtually everyone hears a voice or several voices in their head all the time. The involuntary thought processes that you don't realize you have the power to stop, continuous monologues or dialogues. You've probably come across mad people in the street incessantly talking or muttering to themselves. Well, that's not much different from what you and all the other normal people do, except that you don't do it out loud. The voice comments, speculates, judges, compares, complains, likes, dislikes, and so on. The voice isn't necessarily relevant to the situation you find yourself in at the time. It may be reviving the recent or distant past or rehearsing or imagining possible future situations. Here, it often imagines things going wrong and negative outcomes. This is called worry. Sometimes this soundtrack is accompanied by visual images or mental movies. Even if the voice is relevant to the situation at hand, it will interpret it in terms of the past. This is because the voice belongs to your conditioned mind, which is the result of all your past history as well as the collective cultural mindset you've inherited. So you see and judge the present through the eyes of the past and get a totally distorted view of it. It is not uncommon for the voice to be a person's own worst enemy. Many people live with a tormentor in their head that continuously attacks and punishes them and drains them of vital energy. It is the cause of the untold misery and unhappiness as well as of disease. It is the cause of untold misery and unhappiness, as well as of disease. The good news is, you can free yourself from your mind. This is the only true liberation. You can take the first step right now. Start listening to the voice in your head as often as you can. Pay particular attention to any repetitive thought patterns, those old gramophone records that have been playing in your head perhaps for many years. This is what I mean by watching the thinker, which is another way of saying, listen to the voice in your head. Be there as the witnessing presence. When you listen to that voice, listen to it impartially. That is to say, do not judge. Do not judge or condemn what you hear. For doing so would mean that the same voice has come in again through the back door. You'll soon realize, there is the voice, and here I am listening to it, watching it. This I am realization, this sense of your own presence, is not a thought. It arises from beyond the mind. So when you listen to a thought, you are aware not only of the thought, but also of yourself as the witness of the thought a new dimension of consciousness has come in. As you listen to the thought, you feel a conscious presence, your deeper self, behind or underneath the thought, as it were. The thought then loses its power over you and quickly subsides because you are no longer energizing the mind through identification with it. This is the beginning of the end of involuntary and compulsive thinking. When a thought subsides, you experience a discontinuity in the mental stream, a gap of no mind. At first, the gaps will be short, a few seconds perhaps, but gradually they will become longer. When these gaps occur, you feel a certain stillness and peace inside you. This is the beginning of your natural state of felt oneness with being, which is usually obscured by the mind. With practice, the sense of stillness and peace will deepen, in fact, there is no end to its depth. You also feel a subtle emanation of joy arising from deep within, the joy of being. It is, not, it is not a trance-like state, not at all. There is no loss of consciousness here. The opposite is the case. If the price of peace were a lowering of your consciousness and the price of stillness a lack of vitality and alertness, Then they would not be worth having. In this state of interconnectedness, you are much more alert, more awake than in the mind-identified state. You are fully present. It also raises the vibrational frequency of the energy field that gives life to the physical body. As you go more deeply into this realm of no mind, as it is sometimes called in the East, you realize the state of pure consciousness. In that state, you feel your own presence with such intensity and such joy that all thinking, all emotions, your physical body, as well as the whole external world become relatively insignificant in comparison to it. And yet, this is not a selfish, but a selfless state. It takes you beyond what you previously thought of as yourself. That presence is essentially you, and at the same time, inconceivably greater than you. What I'm trying to convey here is may sound paradoxical or even contradictory, but there is no other way that I can express it. Instead of, quote, watching the thinker, you can also create a gap in the mind stream simply by directing the focus of your attention into the now just become more intensely conscious of the present moment. This is a deeply satisfying thing to do. In this way, you draw consciousness away from mind activity and create a gap of no mind in which you are highly alert and aware but not thinking. This is the essence of meditation. In your everyday life, you can practice this by taking any routine activity that normally is only a means to an end and giving it your fullest attention so that it becomes an end in itself. For example, every time you walk up and down the stairs in your house or place of work, pay close attention to every step, every movement, even your breathing. Be totally present. Or when you wash your hands, pay attention to all the sense perceptions associated with the activity, the sound and feel of the water, the movement of your hands, the scent of the soap, and so on. Or when you get into your car after you close the door, pause for a few seconds and observe the flow of your breath. Become aware of a silent but powerful sense of presence. There is one certain criterion by which you can measure your success in this practice, the degree of peace that you feel within. So the single most vital step on your journey toward enlightenment is this. Learn to disidentify from your mind. Every time you create a gap in the stream of the mind, the light of your consciousness grows stronger. One day you may catch yourself smiling at the voice in your head, as you would smile at the antics of a child. This means that you no longer take the content of your mind all that seriously, as, you sense, as your sense of self does not depend on it. Enlightenment rising above thought. The question in italics is Isn't thinking essential in order to survive in this world? Your mind is an instrument, a tool. It is there to be used for a specific task, and when the task is completed, you lay it down. As it is, I would say about 80 to 90% of most people's thinking is not only repetitive and useless. But because of its dysfunctional and often negative nature, much of it is also harmful. Observe your mind and you will find this to be true. It causes a serious leakage of vital energy. This kind of compulsive thinking is actually an addiction. What characterizes an addiction? Quite simply this, you no longer feel that you have the choice to stop. It seems stronger than you. It also gives you a false sense of pleasure pleasure that invariably turns into pain. Why should we be addicted to thinking? Because you were identified with it, which means that you derive your sense of self from the content and activity of your mind because you believe that you would cease to be if you stopped thinking. As you grow up, you form a mental image of who you are based on the personal and cultural conditioning. We may call this phantom self, the ego, It consists of mind activity and can only be kept going through constant thinking. The term ego means different things to different people, but when I use it here, it means a false self created by unconscious identification with the mind. To the ego, the present moment hardly exists. Only past and future are considered important. This total reversal of the truth accounts for the fact that, in the ego mode, the mind is so dysfunctional, it is always concerned with keeping the past alive, because without it, who are you? It constantly projects itself into the future to ensure its continued survival and to seek some kind of release or fulfillment there. It says, one day, when this, that, or the other happens, I'm going to be okay, happy, at peace. Even when the ego seems to be concerned with the present, it is not the present that it sees. It misinterprets it completely because it looks at it through the eyes of the past. Or it reduces the present to a means to an end. An end that always lies in the mind-projected future. Observe your mind and you'll see that this is how it works. The present moment holds the key to liberation but you cannot find the present moment as long as you are your mind. The question in italics is, I don't want to lose my ability to analyze and discriminate. I wouldn't mind learning to think more clearly in a more focused way, but I don't want to lose my mind. The gift of thought is the most precious thing we have. Without it, we would just be another species of animal. The predominance of mind is no more than a stage in the evolution of consciousness. We need to go on to the next stage now as a matter of urgency. Otherwise, we will be destroyed by the mind, which has grown into a monster. I will talk about this more in detail later. Thinking and consciousness are not, synonyms, or not synonymous. Thinking is only a small aspect of consciousness. Thought cannot exist without consciousness, but consciousness does not need thought. Enlightenment means rising above thought, not falling back to a level below thought the level of an animal or plant. In the enlightened state, you still use your thinking mind when needed, but in a much more focused and effective way than before. You use it mostly for practical purposes, but you are free of the involuntary internal dialogue and there is an inner stillness. When you do use your mind, and particularly when when a creative solution is needed, you oscillate every few minutes or so between thought and stillness between mind and no mind. No mind is a consciousness without thought. Only in that way is it possible to think creatively, because only in that way does thought have any real power. Thought alone, when it is no longer connected with the much vaster realm of consciousness, quickly becomes barren, insane, destructive. The mind is essentially a survival machine, Attack and defense against other minds, gathering, storing, and analyzing information. This is what it is good at, but it is not at all creative. All true artists, whether they know it or not, create from a place of no mind, from inner stillness. The mind then gives form to the creative impulse or insight. Even the great scientists have reported that their creative breakthroughs came at a time of mental quietude. The surprising result of a nationwide inquiry among, amongst America's most eminent mathematicians, including Einstein, to find out their working methods was that thinking, quote, plays only a subordinate part in the brief, decisive phase of the creative act itself. So, I would say that the simple reason why the majority of scientists are not creative is not because they don't know how to think, but because they don't know how to stop thinking. It wasn't through the mind, through thinking, that the miracle that is life on earth or your body were created and are being sustained. There is clearly an intelligence at work that is far greater than the mind. How can a single human cell measuring one one one-thousandth of an inch across contain instructions within his DNA that would fill 1,000 books of 600 pages each. The more we learn about the workings of the body, the more we realize just how vast is the intelligence at work within it and how little we know. When the mind reconnects with that, it becomes a most wonderful tool. It then serves something greater than itself. Emotion The body's reaction to your mind. In italics, the question is, what about emotions? I get caught up in my emotions more than I do in my mind. Mind, in the way I use the word, is not just thought. It includes your emotions as well as all unconscious mental-emotional reactive patterns. Emotion arises at the place where your mind and body meet. It is the body's reaction to your mind, or you might say a reflection of your mind in the body, for example, an attack thought or hostile thought will create a buildup of energy in the body that we call anger. The body is getting ready to fight. The thought that you were being threatened physically or psychologically causes the body to contract, and this is the physical side of what we call fear. Research has shown that strong emotions even cause changes in the biochemistry of the body, biochemical changes represent the physical or material aspect of the emotion. Of course, you are not usually conscious of all your thought patterns, and it is often only through watching your emotions that you can bring them into awareness. The more you are identified with your thinking, your likes, dislikes, judgments, and interpretations, which is to say the less present you are as the watching consciousness, the stronger the emotional energy charge will be, whether you are aware of it or not. If you cannot feel your emotions, if you are cut off from them, you will eventually experience them on a purely physical level, as a physical problem or symptom. A great deal has been written about this in recent years, so we don't need to go into it here. A strong unconscious emotional pattern may even manifest as an external event that appears to just happen to you. For example, I've observed that people who carry a lot of anger inside without being aware of it and without expressing it are more likely to be attacked, verbally or even physically, by other angry people, and often for no apparent reason. They have a strong emanation of anger that certain people pick up subliminally and that triggers their own latent anger. If you have difficulty feeling your emotions, start focusing attention on the inner energy field of your body, Feel the body from within. This will also put you in touch with your emotions. We'll explore this in more detail later. This is in italics. You say that an emotion is in the mind's reflection in the body. But sometimes there is a conflict between the two. The mind says no while the emotion says yes or the other way around. If you really want to know your mind, the body will always give you a truthful reflection. So look at the emotion or rather feel it in your body. If there is an apparent conflict between them, the thought will be the lie. The emotion will be the truth. Not the ultimate truth of who you are, but the relative truth of your state of mind at the time. Conflict between surface thoughts and unconscious mental processes is certainly common. You may not yet be able to bring your unconscious mind activity into awareness as thoughts, but it will always be reflected in the body as an emotion, and of this you can become aware. To watch an emotion in this way is basically the same as listening to or watching a thought, which I described earlier. The only difference is that while a thought is in your head, an emotion has a strong physical component, so it is primarily felt in the body. You can then allow the emotion to be there without being controlled by it. You no longer are the emotion. You're the watcher, the observing presence. If you practice this, all that is unconscious is in you will be brought into the light of consciousness. In italics it says, So observing our emotions is as, Im- is as important as observing our thoughts. Yes. Make it a habit to ask yourself, What is going on inside of me at this moment? The question will point you in the right direction. But don't analyze, just watch. Focus your attention within. Feel the energy of the emotion. If there is no emotion present, take your attention more deeply into the inner energy field of your body. It is the doorway into being. An emotion usually represents an amplified and energized thought pattern, and because of its often overpowering energetic charge, It is not easy initially to stay present enough to be able to watch it. It wants to take you over, and it usually succeeds, unless there is enough presence within you. If you're pulled into unconscious identification with the emotion through lack of presence, which is normal, the emotion temporarily becomes you. Often a vicious cycle builds up between your thinking and the emotion. They often feed each other. The thought pattern creates a magnified reflection of itself in the form of an emotion, and the vibrational frequency of the emotion keeps feeding the original thought pattern. By dwelling mentally on the situation, event, or person that is the perceived cause of the emotion, the thought feeds the energy to the emotion, which in turn energizes the thought pattern, and so on. Basically, all emotions are modifications of one primordial undifferentiated emotion that has its origin in the loss of awareness of who you are beyond name and form. Because of its undifferentiated nature, it is hard to find a name that precisely describes this emotion. Fear comes close, but apart from a continuous sense of threat, it also includes a deep sense of abandonment and incompleteness. It may be best to use a term that is as undifferentiated as the basic emotion and simply call it pain. One of the main tasks of the mind is to fight or remove that emotional pain, which is one of the reasons for its incessant activity. But it can never achieve, but all it can ever achieve is to cover it up temporarily. In fact, the harder the mind struggles to get rid of the pain, the greater the pain. The mind can never find solution, nor can it allow no, nor can it afford to allow you to find the solution because it is itself an intrinsic part of the problem imagine a chief of police trying to find an arsonist when the arsonist is the chief of police you will not be free of that pain until you cease to derive your sense of self from identification with the mind which is to say from ego the mind is then toppled from its place of power and and being reveals itself as your true nature. Yes, I know what you're going to ask. In an italics, it says, I was going to ask, what about positive emotions, such as love and joy? They are inseparable from your natural state of interconnectedness with being. Glimpses of love and joy or brief moments of deep peace are possible whenever a gap occurs in the stream of thought. For most people, such gaps happen rarely and only accidentally in the moments when the mind is rendered speechless, sometimes triggered by great beauty, extreme physical exertion, or even great danger. Suddenly, there is an inner stillness, and within that stillness, there is a subtle but intense joy. There is love. There is peace. Usually, such moments are short-lived as the mind quickly resumes its noise-making activity that we call thinking, Love, joy, and peace cannot flourish until you've freed yourself from mind dominance. But they're not what I would call emotions. They lie beyond the emotions, on a much deeper level. So you need to become fully conscious of your emotions and be able to feel them before you can feel that which lies beyond them. Emotion literally means disturbance. The word comes from the Latin, "emovere," meaning to disturb. Love, joy, and peace are deep states of being rather than three aspects of the state of interconnectedness with being. As such, they have no opposite. This is because they arise from beyond the mind. Emotions, on the other hand, being part of the dualistic mind, are subject to the law of opposites. This simply means that you cannot have good without bad. So, in the enlightened, mind identified condition, What is sometimes wrongly called joy is the usually short-lived pleasure side of the continuously alternating pain-pleasure cycle. Pleasure is always derived from something outside you, whereas joy arises from within. The very thing that gives you pleasure today will give you pain tomorrow, or it will leave you, so its absence will give you pain. And what is often referred to as love may be pleasurable and exciting for a while, but it is... An addictive clinging, an extremely needy condition that can turn into the opposite at the flick of a switch. Many, quote, love relationships after the initial euphoria has passed actually oscillate between love and hate, attraction and attack. Real love doesn't make you suffer. How could it? It doesn't suddenly turn into hate, nor does real joy into pain. As I said, even before you're enlightened, before you have freed yourself from your mind, you may get glimpses of true joy, true love or of a deep inner peace, still but vibrantly alive. These are aspects of your true nature, which is usually obscured by the mind. Even within a normal addictive relationship, there can be moments when presence of something more genuine, something more incorruptible, can be felt. But they will only be glimpses, soon to be covered up again through mind interference. It may then seem that you have something very precious and lost it, or your mind may convince you that it was an illusion anyway. The truth is that it wasn't an illusion. You cannot lose it. It is a part of your natural state, which can be obscured but, never, but can never be destroyed by the mind. Even when the sky is heavily overcast, the sun doesn't disappear. It's still there on the other side of the clouds. In italics, it says, the Buddha says that pain or suffering arises through desire or craving, and that to be free of pain, we need to cut the bonds of desire. All cravings are the mind seeking salvation or fulfillment in external things in the future as a substitute for the joy of being. As long as I am in my mind, I am those cravings, those needs, wants, attachments, and aversions, and part." And apart from them, there is no I except as a mere possibility, an unfulfilled potential, a seed that has not yet sprouted. In that state, even my desire to become free or enlightened is just another craving for fulfillment or completion in the future. So don't seek to become free of desire or achieve enlightenment. Become present. Be there as the observer of the mind. Instead of quoting the Buddha, be the Buddha be the awakened one, which is what the word Buddha means. Humans have been in the grip of pain for eons, ever since they fell from the state of grace, entered the realm of time and mind, and lost awareness of being. At that point, they started to perceive themselves as meaningless fragments in an alien universe, unconnected to the source and to each other. Pain is as inevitable, pain is inevitable as long as you are identified with your mind which is to say, as long as you are unconscious, spiritually speaking. I'm talking here primarily of emotional pain, which is also the main cause of physical pain and physical disease. Resentment, hatred, self-pity, guilt, anger, depression, jealousy, and so on, even the slightest irritation, are all forms of pain. And every pleasure or emotional high contains within itself the seed of pain, its inseparable opposite, which will manifest in time. Anybody who has ever taken drugs to get high will know that the high eventually turns into a low, that the pleasure turns into some form of pain. Many people also know from their own experience how easily and quickly an intimate relationship can turn from a source of pleasure to a source of pain. Seen from a higher perspective, both the negative and positive polarities are faces of the same coin, are both part of the underlying pain that is inseparable from the mind-identified egoic state of consciousness. There are two levels to your pain, the pain that you create now, and the pain from the past that still lives on in your mind and body. Ceasing to create pain in the present and dissolving past pain, this is what I want to talk about now. And that wraps up the first chapter of The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. And this has a great a great series of, of quotes and concepts where we really dive into what the mind is actually doing behind the scenes before you kind of get into that perspective of the watcher. And in the first episode of the podcast, I talked about that concept of you know when you realize that you're not just a character in the book you're the you you're the reader you can look at it from the perspective of the reader and then beyond that you can elevate yourself to the level of the author this is kind of a similar concept where you are the watcher of your mind you're the watcher of your thoughts most of which we're unconscious of i mean before i really got to a lot of these concepts you know i was in my my mid 30s and you have 30 something years there with that particular individual uh, being myself of thoughts running on autopilot, all the conditionings, everything else that has just created a a knee-jerk response, a conditioned response of the way that you react to stimulus, the way that you react to things that happen in your life and people, and you get triggered to react a certain way, you do it, the emotion comes out, you say things, you do things. But when you're able to step back, and not have the same reactions, and you're able to embody what they're talking about here, about freeing yourself from your mind and becoming the watcher. You're watching what's going on in your own emotions. You're watching the thinker. It frees you in such a liberating way. And When we hit those pause points, I'm not sure how to react to those. I'm, I'm debating not pausing at those points, but I mean, they're in here for a reason because Eckhart wanted the, the person to sit and pause at those certain points. So, I mean, I guess for now it's, it's a valuable thing to leave in there because it's a concept where he wanted you to pause and think about what it was. And, you know, this is the kind of episode where I would probably, I probably will listen to this myself a few times to embody it all because there's so much content in here, but when you can really step back and look at the thoughts and look at your reactions, even if you have to Monday morning, quarterback. You get in the heat of the moment with a certain situation. And then once you're done, you can step back and look at how you thought, how you reacted. Most of us can't do that that observation in the heat of the moment we can't do it in the middle of a certain situation but after it's over you can look back and say you know i wish i would have reacted a different way you're doing that in essence and that's that's sort of conditioning that's the walk the, the crawling before you walk and then the walk before you run so if you're able to do that after certain, certain situations and you can monday morning quarterback your own reactions to things that's a start and then from there, you can sort of observe your own emotions as you're going through things, and you'll have more experience in doing that as you embody these concepts a little bit more. I want to thank you, everybody, for tuning into this episode of the Live This Life podcast and the reading of The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle, uh, provided by Namaste Publishing. We'll catch you next time. Keep living, everybody. Thanks for listening.